We're in the middle of the burren looking out over a large turlock with it's almost like blue, turquoisey blue colour and an expanse of uh, burrony rock and hazel outside a hostel uh, with, with a windmill and its own um, solar panels. And we're going to meet a Dutchman who we've travelled basically the entire breadth of the country to meet, a man I hear like can give me an understanding of nature, of landscape and countryside and how we as humans fit into it that is clearer and better than anyone else. So I'm looking forward to this. The man in question is basking in the Burren sun at a picnic table overlooking a spectacular plateau of Burren landscape. Hello, nice to meet you. And I'll let him introduce himself as I'm bound to mispronounce his name. Matthias, is it? Yeah, that's grand. And in Dutch it is Matthias. Matthias. Yeah. Matthias Schouten, to give him his full name, is... Well, he's lots of things. Sit down. Do you want a cup of coffee or something like that? He's an ecologist, a theologist, a Buddhist, a professor of ecology and nature conservation, both in the Netherlands and at the School of Environmental Sciences in UCC. He's also a meditation teacher and a strategist for the Dutch Forestry Commission. And he's probably the single most influential person in the conservation of the last intact Irish peatlands. And I've come here with Matthijs because I want to ask him one big question. How do we build a true partnership with nature? I want to know how we should go about resetting the rather dysfunctional relationship we now have with our surroundings. Should we be like owners or stewards or partners of nature? These are big questions, requiring the ability to juggle myriad different concepts and ideas. Welcome to the Almanac of Ireland. Good. Matthias takes us to a gorgeous spot just below the limestone hill that is Mullock Moor. The, the lucky thing, like you've brought us to a hidden spot in the burn, like a secret spot of yours, but I'll never find this again. I might as well have been brought here blindfolded. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> as we pick our way across an uneven rock-strewn field in search of a place to sit in this glorious sunshine, I think about Matthias and how well he knows Ireland. On a trip here as a research student in 1978, he was shocked by the relentless destruction of Irish bogs and immediately he established the Dutch Foundation for the Conservation of Irish Bogs. They spent three years raising enough funds to purchase three peatlands in Ireland, which they then gifted to the Irish people. This was the very beginning of peatland conservation in Ireland. And in his scientific work, Matthijs has studied the cultural perceptions of nature all around the world. If you sit side by side, it's easier. Is that okay yeah. for you? Yeah. Grand. We find our spot and settle down for Pisa Bjog Kainter, for, for a little chat. All right. What are we going to talk about? What I'd love to know is your insight into nature, into what nature is. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> you see... I teach a class in marketing in university called um, Environmental Philosophy. And then I ask the students, and usually there's about 50 to 100 of them, and I say, this class is going to last for three months. And the first six weeks, we're going to answer one question, which is, what is nature? (laughs) And the second six weeks, we're going to use 
to answer the question, why should we conserve nature? But it takes us six weeks to get up with, come up with a good idea of nature. And that has to do with the fact that, that nature is, of course, a contextual concept. And in the West, we make a, a, a distinction between nature and culture. And nature is, and even that's incorporated in the origin and etymology of the word, is that which develops spontaneously by itself, without the human mind and the creativity of humans doing something with it. Whenever that becomes involved, the human mind and human capacities and human creativity, we call it culture. So our worldview has an inherent nature-culture dichotomy. When you ask the Chinese what nature is, they say, ah, everything. I mean, the concepts in Chinese about nature are always heaven, earth, humans. So that's the whole, the whole bloody thing. And philosophically speaking, therefore, they're very different, different ideas of nature. And then I always tell my students, ultimately, there is no um, absolute definition of nature. That's contextual. And we humans construct that concept. But at the same time, we all agree that it has something to do with um, spontaneity, spontaneous development, things that are not directly under our control, at least in the Western world. So do you think, are we part of nature? Or is that again subjective? <laughs> I think we're part of nature. And even in the Western philosophical tradition, uh, humans as an organism are seen as part of nature. But then what we do in all our activities has, slowly and gradually, become quite out of tune with what nature does in its normal workings, natural processes. So there is, 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 is a sort of friction. And that always pops up when you talk about the definitions of nature and culture, etc., etc. Because in a way, they're out of sync. Our cultural exploits are um, basically damaging a lot of the world in which we live. So there's a tension there. But as organisms, we're definitely nature. So yes, we are part of nature. We are, after all, animals. But for a long time, in many human traditions, we've been in denial about that. We've gone to great lengths to distinguish ourselves as something different or apart from other animals. And in so doing, we've created a chasm, a dichotomy between the human world and the natural world. And has that dichotomy between human and nature grown? Yes, absolutely. You see, the... the not only has the West made a distinction between um, culture and nature, what it also has done in about two and a half thousand years of cultural tradition, first it has taken any rationality out of nature, because Aristotle made a hierarchy of natural things, starting with minerals and lower plants and higher plants and lower animals and higher animals. We still use that, by the way, in, in, in biology. But, he said, there's a major difference between animals and humans, humans have logos, they have a rational mind. So, any rationality was taken out of nature. For the Greeks, this whole planet was an organism. Everything was animated. Everything that moves and grows must have a soul. And I sort of distinguish a plant soul and an animal soul and a human soul. So, everything was animated. What happened later is that in the Christian tradition, the soul was taken out of nature. Christianity decided that there's only one immortal soul for humans and the rest of nature is soulless. So there nature lost its soul and then we got René Descartes who um, 
philosophized that there's only two substances, matter and mind. And I have to quote him correctly. He said, and I've not been able to prove that there's any other entity but the human who combines matter and mind. Therefore, everything around us that seems to have emotions, etc., etc., that's just seemingly so because everything that moves or grows or does it by the laws of mechanics. So then uh, all the mind was taken away from nature. And what was left eventually is um, a world full of objects in which we are the only subject. And Max Weber, the sociologist, said then we had completely disenchanted the world. And that, I think, is very fundamental to all the crises we now have. We have reduced the world around us to a collection of objects, of things that are there for us to use, to exploit. And we've lost the sense of, uh, basically, a sense of wonder and a sense of connectedness to a world that's full of what the Ojibwa Native Americans called other than people, persons. Hmm? We're surrounded by all kinds of living things and even living things in terms of rivers, mountains, lakes, and for the, for the Native Americans and for many tribal uh, civilizations, they were alive, they were animated. They had a different, of course, a different awareness than we had, etc., etc., but you saw them as partners in life. That has been lost in Western society. And I think that's the basis of our crises. We treat nature as a collection of things to be exhausted, just a shop, a storehouse of objects, and we lost the sense of, of wonder, respect, connectedness, which has been present in all civilizations of this world, and reduced it to a collection of things that need to be colonized and used, which we have done very efficiently. We've colonized the whole world, and not only colonized it physically from the West, but we also exported our images of the world. And um, there we have our ecological crisis, our environmental crisis, our climate crisis, they all stem from this image of the human-nature relationship. Ultimately, I think we also are damaging our souls. By seeing human beings ourselves as the only people that have a soul and a meaning and a purpose in this world, in a world of, in a disenchanted world, makes us very lonely. Ultimately, we have become orphans. I feel that we've made ourselves orphans in this world. And that's a lonely status. And we can only rely then on other humans and all the other than human beings in this world are not there anymore. And that damages, I think, our very foundation, the soul of humanity. When we're not in balance with the natural world and see it just as a storehouse of objects that we can exploit and use, we ultimately threaten our own future. And we're doing that. And then also, through what we do, we basically harm many other living beings that have a right to be there. Why are we the only people that have a right to exist? I mean, I hear birds singing there. Don't they have a right to be there? Doesn't that gentian that grows here in spring have a right to be there? So we take away, basically, from the right of existence of all kinds of other beings. So I think the loss of harmony has some consequences. <laughs>
it's hard to imagine to imagine when you're sitting in a spot as beautiful as this. So we're now in the High Burren, sitting on an outcrop of limestone with that complexity of wild herbs that uh, you only find in the burn and looking out over like hazelnut scrub trees out to the distance, out to Clare. So it looks almost like a, a pristine environment that is under threat from nothing. Uh, interesting thing, it is not a pristine environment because it emerged from thousands of years of cooperation between nature, nature and humans. Farmers have been here since, since um, the Neolithic and they shaped this landscape. And what this landscape, in a way, some people consider it a sort of degraded landscape because a lot of soil has been lost and you have all this, these limestone pavements. But I find this, for me, this is one of the best examples in the world of what the cooperation between humans and nature can do. This has created an enormously diverse habitat. It's extremely rich in species, the burn. At the same time, it's breath takingly beautiful. So it's not pristine in the sense that it's just nature, but it is a fabulous example of, of harmony between humans and nature and under threat. And there's very few places, in, at least in the, in the Western world or European world, remaining like this. But, and the complexity of it is that when we want to conserve nature, what we usually do, and that's what we've done since the 19th century, we designate an area as a national park or nature reserve, put a fence around it, and then that's for nature. That's grand. We need to do that. But there were old agricultural landscapes all over the world where you had this balance between human activity and nature, which in itself led to what Cicero would have called a new nature within nature, uh, which I think is, is a fantastic image, where we create, together with nature, an other form of landscape, another form of habitat. And they traditionally were extremely rich in biodiversity. The interaction between nature and human activities led to great biodiversity, but also to breathtaking beautiful landscapes. And there's seriously no threat everywhere. Because people that work these landscapes as farmers, they have become marginalized. They, they, they can't not survive economically anymore. So what happens to these types of landscapes worldwide is they're abandoned or their agriculture intensifies. And so, on both counts, you lose them. And this is one of the best remaining examples in, uh, in Ireland, but I also think one of the best remaining examples in Northern Europe, of a traditional, very rich agricultural landscape. Um, is it possible to create landscapes in which humanity and biodiversity coexist? And is that a potential solution that we should be looking at? It's a, I think it's definitely a solution that we should be looking at. Um, you see, what has sh shaped this landscape is farming mm -hmm. and traditional farming. And of course, farming practices have changed dramatically since the Second World War. I was reading students' thesis this morning and, and uh, the student referred to a sort of ideology that developed after the la last world war, never hunger again. This whole idea that we have to be able to produce our own food, etc., never dependent, etc., that has led to, uh, to intensification of farming all over Europe and also now in parts of the, of the, the third world. Uh, and interestingly enough, the person who, who was within the EU context, campaigning very much for, for intensification of farming, Sikko Mansholt, he was Dutch, had a great influence. He was in Holland also involved in all kinds of farming organizations. At the end of his life, he regretted what he'd done because he saw what was happening. Huh? The, out, the, the farm output and, uh, increased, but what changed was the landscape, dramatically. 
And uh, farming is at the moment one of the greatest threats to biodiversity in our part of the world. And I think if we really want to move to a sustainable future, we have to find new ways of producing our food in such a way that it is in context with the requirements of the environment. And there are numerous examples of where that is happening. It's even happening here in the burn, you know, that we have to burn burn life program, which is fantastic, where farmers are paid not for the amount of beef that they produce, but for the amount of biodiversity that they produce. And I think we have to move to a system where we um, basically conclude that farming does not only produce all kinds of farm products in terms of beef and dairy, whatever you have, but that farming also produces landscape, clean environment, biodiversity. And that farmers should be paid for doing that because we as a society value these things. What we do nowadays is uh, we pay them for their, their, their farm output, very often not enough because food prices are way too low. The result is degradation of the environment, pollution of the environment. So I feel that we simply should say a farmer who works in a sustainable way should be paid for all the other products as well. And not by grants and not by temporary subsidies. These farmers never know whether they will be getting money in five years' time because EU policy might change or national policy might change. We have to incorporate this into a normal system, in a social contract, in our normal system of paying for a good product. And only then can we create uh, sustainable landscapes. And what I see in Holland now, because Holland is, of course, a very intensive agricultural landscape, now about half of our country is an ecological desert. You have very intensive farming, no butterflies flying around, there's no bees, you hear no birds sick, they're all gone. And people start to regret this. And you see a movement of young farmers now coming up, and part of them are are the the sons and daughters of traditional farmers, but part of them were educated in cities. And they, they, they see what has been lost in the countryside. And they have set up an organization, organization called Farmers for the Future. And they are trying to follow this path of, of organic farming or environmentally friendly farming. Not subsidized enough yet enough, or subsidized not the right word, right word not paid enough yet, I feel, by the public on the one hand who pay for the, for the products, on the other hand by our government. But that's changing. They are getting stronger, and at the moment, I'm proud to say, for that's basically since 30 years, we have a minister for agriculture who understands what she's doing. She she really is investing in um, in another type of farming for the future. And this is in the Netherlands. In the Netherlands, it's in this most intensive place. But sh- so you're saying the Dutch farmers aren't happy. There's a number of the Dutch farmers on the topic. Let's say the Dutch Farmers Association and, and, and particularly very big farmers with, with, very, very, with factory farming, etc., they're not happy. But younger farmers see a future in this new way of farming. So something is changing there. But you said something really optimistic at the beginning of that. You said how, you know, after the Second World War, there was this, there was this demand that we need to feed ourselves. Yeah, yeah. And basically... Governments came together mm. and succeeded beyond our wildest dreams. Mm-hmm. Like, not only did they manage to feed themselves, they managed to feed a population that was four times the size. So what, it, the population has grown. It's now, is it now about mm. nine billion or so? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was... Eight billion, yeah. Eight billion. It would have been maybe three billion, yeah, then, yeah, maybe yeah. two and a yeah. half. 
So by governments coming together with a mission, in fact, they can be ridiculously mm. successful over a very short amount of time. Absolutely, they can. But you have to realise, when I get back to Holland, that what's being produced in Holland is not to feed the Dutch population. Most of it is exported. We've learned to be more efficient in farming. We've, we've developed all kinds of new farming techniques, but we overstepped our boundaries. And the, we have to find a, a new balance and a new way of producing food. If not, we will be in trouble. You talked about the relationship between humans and nature mm -hmm. and how there's a certain disharmony, there's a certain discord. Are there ways to rebalance that, to, to re-knit that connection, that we might feel part of nature again? Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. First of all, I think it's part of our education system. I'm involved in the Netherlands in, in, in a program that's called Nature Wise because we found that in primary schools in the country, one out of Three children occasionally came somewhere outside into something that you would, could call nature. Two out of three never got out of the cities, never were somewhere green. They had no idea where the food came from. When asked what the most important wildlife in the Netherlands is, the first answer was elephants, and then we had lions. Because people, the children had never been out there. They didn't know. And we realized if we want a sustainable future for the country, we need to do something. So we set up a program that's called Nature Wise, where children are brought out into nature three times a year in three different seasons. And most importantly, the people that teach this program are taught to give the children space to find their own sense of wonder, their own connections, their own discoveries. And what we find is that children who follow this program, compared to their peers who have not followed the program, first of all, have a deeper interest in nature. But there was a second outcome that surprised me and it also made me extremely happy. These children appear to be more open to their environment. They are more social in class. They listen more. They have become aware of other beings than themselves if you get my drift. So we say now in this program, we not only educate children to become more sustainable managers of this world, we're also educating them to become world citizens. You know? But the fascinating thing is that when these children, and that's only three times a year for three different seasons, and what is, what, what is always happening in these courses, you never know what's going to happen because the trainers bring these children out, and then nature dictates what happens. When it rains, it becomes very different when it doesn't rain. When there's an animal, it's very different when there's not an animal. So nature basically indicates what's going to happen on that day. For children, that's quite fascinating. But what I find very encouraging is that when these children come into contact with, let's say, the natural world and the non-man-made world in which they normally live and all their smartphones in which they're normally absorbed, something happens in the appreciation of their of their being in the world. They connect, they're opener, huh? they listen, they're more social. And that shows you how important it is that we are also in contact with what I would call 
the other, not only the things that we create, but also the things that have a life of their own. Again, the other than human persons. Huh? Can that sort of immersion be created in a city or is it vital that people get out of a city to experience that? It's, it's great when they can get out of a city, but you can do it in a city as well because we've now also started to do it in city parks and even in school gardens. Most of Dutch schools in the past had a garden, school garden. It's gone, it's concrete everywhere. Now we bring back school gardens. And you can do it in a school garden as well. You can, can look at what's happening in your little garden all day and see things that you would never have seen before. It's just... Ultimately, you're training them to look at the world in a different way. You see, the problem I feel that we've done through our culture, I've nothing against culture, I love culture, but we've created a world which is basically a replicate of our ideas, concepts, desires, and we have created uh, landscapes which are fully reflecting our images, our ideas, our desires. Basically, they're mirror image, images of ourselves. So we're walking around very often in what I call a palace of mirrors. We just see our own reflections. We're never in touch with something that does its own thing, that doesn't follow our directions, that has its own life, spontaneity, dimension, whatever. And by losing that contact with something that's outside our palace of mirrors, we become very isolated, lonely people that just stare at our own faces all the time. And we lose the sense of being part of a community, a greater community of life. And discovering that greater community of life, be it in your back garden, be it in the city park, be it in the middle of the burn, I think contributes to the health of the soul and to happiness. Uh -huh. And when you said, like my experience, you said of a nature day with schools, is, as you explained, someone is telling you which bird that is, which tree yeah. that is. And you're saying we need to allow children experience nature for themselves. How is that done practically? <laughs> um, for instance, one of the things they, the, the trainers do, and I love that thing, is they ask the children to have a walk on their own. I mean, we always make sure that that's safe. Not in groups, but on their own. And then just let your feet guide you. Don't think too much and let your feet guide you. Up till the moment that you suddenly realize, ah... This is a special spot. And then you sit down and ask yourself, why is this so special for me? Why was I struck by something that made me feel this is a special spot? And a child discovers a crooked tree or, or a strange fern or realizes that he heard a bird sing that he hadn't heard before. And that's the moment where they really connect because then they make their own connection. Not the connection, that's an oak tree and you should remember that. They find their own special magic. And then when they come back and talk about why that spot was special and show the other children why that spot was special, you suddenly see something emerging. Interestingly enough, a sense of identity connected to what's out there. And you see the children grow. <laughs> we always bring the teachers out as well. And the teachers very often say, they're, they're normal class teachers, they very often say at the end, there were children in my class that I had never really seen that I thought were very quiet and etc. And suddenly they open up. And I see children, I see the, 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 the sort of soul of children that, that I had never seen before. And that's, of course, what it's all about. You have spent so much of your time introducing people and students to, a, to an appreciation of nature. Have you seen the impacts of that? Have you seen direct <laughs> examples of people having that connection, having their soul blown open? You mean, you mean of, the, of the people that I yeah, taught abroad? exactly. Oh, you see, I, I realized I am teaching now a class for Cork students. I've now taught in the Burren 
a thousand students over the last 20 years. So that's, and the fascinating thing is I now come across these students everywhere. They're working worldwide. When I'm conferences somewhere, suddenly a student pops up. Or when I'm traveling on trains, on planes, I meet students that I taught here. And very often, they're doing what they're really passionate about. Uh, and they very often are involved in conservation, whether that's policy or practical research. But those that I meet, they, uh, they follow, they follow their, 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 what I would say, true vocation. And I'm not saying it's all due to me. It's due to, I teach them in the burn, or I teach them in bogs. I always teach them outside. I always say it's due to the place where they're taught. Because they're taught by me, but they're also taught by the burn, they're also taught by box, they're also taught by nature. And when that happens, when they make that connection... Last night, we were sitting here at the hostel, there was a student who said, uh, we've been here for three days and now I know I want to work in conservation for the rest of my life. And he was training to become a lab scientist. <laughs> and I'm not saying that lab science is not good, we need that as well. But when that connection is made, that's the only thing I try to do. I, I, I mean, of course, I teach them academia, I teach them about communities or whatever. But I think my most the most important role I can play is to make them connect and make them feel that they're part of a larger community of life, which is the most beautiful thing you can feel. Because then you stop being an orphan. How? How do you do that? By bringing them out, by letting them discover. Now they're up on the mountain, they're just discovering for themselves, they're not being told anything, but also by storytelling. I think one of the most important things in teaching is storytelling. Storytelling in the sense that you um, take them on a journey. When we're here in the burn, we make a journey. On the first day, we make a journey to um, the Devonian and the Carboniferous, and we travel through time, and they see how the rocks were laid down and formed, and then we follow the journey of water, upstream, downstream, underground caves, so even, even cave. Then we follow the journey of the development of the soils and how they came to be, and then we make the journey of prehistorical times, and this was all for us to the earliest settlers, the Neolithic farmers, Bronze Age, Iron Age, Christian period, and how the whole landscape formed and what it is. And then we also journey then through the archaeology, which is also a journey where they get stories at every archaeological site, and then we journey through what's happened in the last 30 years in which this landscape will change. And it's just a journey, and I don't ask them anything then to make the journey through what they see and through the the stories I tell. And then they get a day on the mountain, and then on the Friday they only need to do one thing, think about how this landscape can be, I don't like the word conserved, how this landscape can be made to live on, while at the same time the people living in the landscape have a, a sound socio-economic future, combine humans and the landscape. And the ideas that they come up with are fantastic. I mean, they struggle, but through having made that journey and having connected to what this place is, I will call it the soul of the place, but also the soul of all the people living here who need to carve a life and who also hope for their children in the future. And combining that all, then something happens. Then something clicks. I think that's the way. It's journeying and it is storytelling. Wow, so that is Matej Schouten. 
When I'm arguing with my girlfriend, I try to aspire towards seeing her side of the debate and not just mine. I mean, at least I try to. But I think that's what Matthias is asking for. That we take account of nature as opposed to solely thinking of our own needs. The natural world has as much right to exist as we do. And the challenge, I think, he's saying, is to try to use our like phenomenal ingenuity to find a way of doing this. And I love the fact that if we do manage, the consequences are astounding. We're no longer orphaned, according to him, no longer alienated people. Our mental health, our sense of self returns to some form of balance. The world becomes re-enchanted just by us recognising our connection to, to, what was that word he used, to the other than people persons, the, the Ojibwe phrase. But is it really as simple as just getting children out into nature again, allowing them reconnect with it on their own terms? If so, that's surely possible. I had a load more to ask Matthijs about all of this, and I kept him sitting there on the rock for a good hour more. And we're going to feature some of that chat on the next episode of The Almanac of Ireland. In the meantime, I plan to head out into nature and to walk until something makes me stop. In fact, we should all just go outside and walk until we encounter the crooked tree or the strange bird call or whatever it is that has an impact on us, that begins the process of our re-enchantment. The Almanac of Ireland was presented by me, Moncon McGann, and produced by Colette Kinsella. The series was funded by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with the television licence fee. And it's a Red Hair Media production for RT Radio.